You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because we can do it better than any AI, and we're damned if we let evil corporations stop us. <laughs> I'm Krithika H. Rao. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 103, World Building, It Builds Character. I'm so happy to have you join us again. I love it when we get re- like repeat guests on the show because it means we great. didn't scare them it off the first time. Scare them away, and it's so great to check back in and see how things are going. So, how are things going? Oh, things are going fabulous. We are inching, racing closer to debut of the Surviving Sky. I, <laughs> I can't even remember the last time uh, that I was here. I mean, I remember being on the episode, but. I, Time is just as blur, so was Time's it like... Fake. Time's fake. I was, I was going to say, when we last had you on here, your book was about to come out. And yeah, I, I had a different publisher then. Yes, yeah, so much has changed. Actually about to come out. And you're in uniquely good company on this podcast with that particular <laughs> kerfuffle. Yes, oh my God, am I ever. <laughs> Solidarity 5. Whoop, whoop. But things are going great. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm super excited to be here. Yes, and since um, we do have new listeners who may not have been around for your first episode and now will want to go back and listen to it, um, but would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and um, maybe give us a little pitch for Surviving Sky too? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, So my name is Kritika H. Rao. I am a science fiction and fantasy author, and my debut epic science fantasy called The Surviving Sky is coming out on June 13th via Titan Books. Um, I love the story. It is a story about a husband-wife duo who are trying to save their floating plant city from crashing into jungle storms, even as they try to save their marriage. And I'm just so excited to be able to write a story with like a husband and wife duo uh, in their like mid thirties, because I feel like that's a space often unexplored in science fiction and fantasy. Um, And this particular book, it's the first of a trilogy and it's uh, based on Hindu philosophy, which is also really exciting to kind of put this story out there. Um, Yeah, and if if your listeners, if they get a chance to go look at the cover, oh my God, please go look at the cover. It is just an utterly gorgeous cover. I think I just got super lucky and I I kind of have to plug that every now and then just because, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a cover that would make an amazing like wall size poster so you could just like zoom in and, and just spend time looking at all the little details in it it's really gorgeous yeah I actually do have that my husband got that made for me and it's just it's sitting in our living room because <laughs> nice yeah I love it and I love I love the story I love this book because yes listeners you really did hear that right floating plant city that's correct and I will let you read it to find out exactly what that looks like but the fact that these two characters they are they're like real adults who have like, you know, real careers and, and yet like the emotional depth of the story is just, you know, if you ever thought that competent people can't still be emotional wrecks who will wreck themselves and you. Yeah. They still can. (laughs) They still can. My God. And I feel like that is, the more I write, the more I realize that that is like just one of my go-to things. Like my, my author brand is to write hyper-competent people who just, fuck shit up (laughs) like you are smarter than this why are you doing this and because like they have rationalizations and all of that and in their heads it totally makes sense right Uh, but they're still extremely good at their jobs and but they but they have issues (laughs) god do they have issues i remember my beta reader saying way back when like oh these guys need therapy i'm like most characters in science fiction fantasy books do (laughs) they really do Yeah, you know, you know, it's you know, it's a good read when they need therapy. I always prefer it when the people are very competent at their jobs, but like emotional idiots, and that's and that's the source of much of the conflict is that they 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 know what they're doing, but that doesn't mean that they're going to do the right thing. And it's extremely relatable. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) there is that aspect of it. Yeah, it's uh, that's adulting, right? I, I feel like anyone like you know 30 up etc i think we're all just kind of in the same boat um i remember writing this just like this interview piece for the surviving sky um and saying like how this kind of relates to my identity and me kind of growing up and i'm like i belong to a generation of millennials you know we thought the world was going to be a totally different way and this is what it is and we just realized like ah 
we we are so we, we are educated we're good at our jobs we thought we had all the skills and everything and now here we're just kind of floundering around it like life and <laughs> this book is a representation of that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> But it's also, okay, it's also, I think, I gave you a professional blurb, but my unprofessional blurb was, it's so fucking weird and I couldn't put it down. Like, the the ecology and, and the stuff that is built into the floating city, like, it is fascinating, it's unique, and it's absolutely enthralling, so... Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome job writing an awesome book. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. Yeah, I I wrote this book at the height of pandemic. Um, and I often get feedback saying, oh, the world building is incredible. And, you know, this is a book to get lost in and that kind of thing. And I'm like, well, that's because, like, I was... I was writing it to get lost in it because I was living in this awful world during the pandemic. Like all I wanted to do was go and live in a different world. So I created one and I'm really glad that that kind of comes out to readers. And that's, that's always rewarding. Since this is such a fantastically complex world and, um, and you are a return guest, um, we often like to ask our guests, like, what do you like about world building? What draws you to it? But, but since this isn't your first rodeo with us, the next level up question, I was kind of curious, like what, because there's so many layers and levels in in the story in the world building like what connections do you enjoy playing with in world building like the things that connect to each other um the pieces that fit together like what what do you enjoy playing with in terms of of that it's kind of a weird answer but i kind of let the prose carry me forward when i kind of do that it's like when i'm creating a world yeah there's certain like you know cornerstones to the world that i'm kind of creating and and i don't anymore at least like way back when I was kind of like okay these are the rules and so on and so forth but I don't do that anymore um it just kind of happens more organically but as I'm kind of just writing the sentence and playing with that it kind of emerges from it and then I just follow like a train of logic essentially and it could be anything it oftentimes it's a small small piece of it a small artifact or um something like light shining in a particular way or again it doesn't have to be a very big thing but then my my mind always kind of goes to well why is it like that and at the end of it i'm just always questioning why and some of some of those answers yield like actual gold and some of them just kind of peter out into nothing. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to kind of let those connections happen on their own, which almost sounds like it's a very um, discovery writing kind of technique. And I'm so much of a planner. Like I, I tend to have like my, you know, scene maps and all of that. But yeah, more and more, I realize that as I'm kind of building words, it often just happens organically if I'm just following the character through their eyes and noticing what the character is noticing, noticing um, and you know, writing down what the character themselves are sensing and that kind of thing. So it, I think the world is so much defined by who, whose point of view you're viewing it from. Like we all live in this world, you know, in the same, on the same planet, but obviously we all notice some extremely different things about it. And I don't think that's different in writing fiction either. Absolutely. Yeah. Thinking about who are you seeing the world through? How do they see it? How do they think about it? How do they engage with it? That's such a smart way to consider not just the world, but also like the characters and and what the reader's experience of those characters is going to be. In The Surviving Sky, especially, you have um, Eravan, one of the main characters, he's an architect and he creates, um, he helps create the city, the plant city with his magic. And um, so he, he has a very architect perspective and his wife doesn't do magic and she's got a very different perspective. And then you have like engineers, a soul, well, they're supposed to be solar engineers, that's not what they are, but sun engineers, and they have a very different take on it because in that world, their, people's careers define a lot of what they do. But in other books that I've written, in other works, it's it it's just the lens of what they care about, I think. You know, I, at least I feel like people look at the world based off of what they care about as opposed to what they don't care about. Um, even, even if what they care about is a negative thing, you know, so that that helps define your worldview in many ways. And I think that's true also in writing fiction. Definitely. So I feel like Surviving Sky could have been a very steep on-ramp for readers and could have been um, a much less pleasant book to read had the world building not been crafted so enjoyably. It could have been like either very confusing or like a total info dump situation. So are there any techniques or, or viewpoints or philosophy of thinking about how to craft the world building when you're actually doing the writing that you think about 
I think the one thing I really try doing is to only give as much information as is necessary at that point. Um, and not give any more. And um, and oftentimes I need beta readers to tell me if I need to have more or less of that, but only what is enough for the reader to understand the preceding few sentences and the next few sentences, and that is enough. And everything else they'll either learn through context or it, it'll have its pieces later on. I do like layering world building as opposed to, as you said, like info dumps and you know large passages of this is how the world works and that kind of thing, uh, because, well, for one thing, when I'm writing, I, I get bored really quickly. <laughs> so um, so if if that paragraph or that sentence or that idea has gone on for too long, in my head, I'm like, yeah, this is boring. So I, I just oftentimes just don't even go down that path. I'm like, one paragraph, that's enough. Let's move on to the next idea because my reader brain kind of activates and says, all right, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Move on. So, <laughs> so I just end up kind of writing like a different piece of the world or plot or, you know, suddenly there's an argument or something, but only as much as is interesting. And I think genre defines that a lot. Um, the the plotting of the world kind of defines that a lot. The character voice defines a lot. Like what is boring to one character is not going to be boring to another. And the voice of it, the way that you kind of write it, I think will define it. Again, like I could be writing like extremely dry mathematical equations in terms of like world building. But if the character is so passionate about it, um, then that passion of the character is going to kind of going to going to make that interesting I think and um, carry the reader through so I just I, I find that again it almost always nails right back to the character in terms of how much world is being shown through it like I I don't write omniscient so it is very much from a point of view of somebody and so who is that somebody why do they care about it and if I answer that question often why do they care about it and why do they care about it now um, that helps me define how much of the world building information to put in at a particular time but uh, but I mean this this makes me sound way smarter than I actually am I'm honestly when I'm writing it it is very much on the lines of am I bored or am I not no, I, actually that that sounds like a really good idea actually <laughs> because if you're bored the reader's probably bored too so it's a really yeah. good like oh hold on here who, who actually wants to know about this and I love what you said about like what do you need to know for like just right now yeah because one thing that I found as I was reading was like the sense of like, well, now I'm curious. You know what I mean? Instead of, ha- instead of giving it to me all at once, you kept me curious for what am I going to learn next? Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. that part of that was that breaking it out into just what you need to know right now, just feeding this little piece at a time, which I think is really smart. Smart. Thank you. I wish I could say that was intentional, but it was, it was <laughs> part of it was my ADHD brain going, ah. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to misattribute this quote, but I think it was Terry Pratchett who said, I, I just skip the parts that no one reads. <laughs> like when you're writing, just, just skip those parts. Just <laughs> And I, valid. Like I enjoy when you read, um, when you read Goldman's The Princess Bride and they, it's a bridge oh, from the yes. original, but of course there was no original, but he like includes his passages. And this is the part where I cut a scene about packing that lasted for 12 pages in which they packed every single hat, dress, pair of shoes. And you're like, yeah, see, that's, yep. That's see, I would have read the unabridged version. I was really disappointed <laughs> when I found there out. Was no, was there was, I was, I was so mad there was no unabridged version. I was like, I want to read about the hats. Right. And right. and the funny thing is, like, that totally depends on the voice of um, the character, too. So, the you know, the 12 pages of packing, I'm telling you, my toddler son would find that riveting because he's like, oh, my God, lists and re- repetition. And I love this. Here's another book. Here's the same book we've read 45,000 times. Read it again, mommy. So just just hand him the catalog of ships from the Iliad. Just be like, here you go, kid. <laughs> Have fun with that for a while. Totally. Uh, I- so, I mean... It, it, if 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 the character voice actually you know cares about that and that those twelve pages of packing like that is the shit like and and imagine what that could tell you about a world or a character in twelve pages of packing you could learn so much the entire trade history sartorial history anyway I, I'm just imagining like a fantasy novel written by Wes Anderson and here we will list the things that they have packed. And I, I like, I really like making lists. So if that wasn't a bullet point, I would just be devouring it. I'd be like, holy shit, this is my jam. <laughs> like, wow, what, what else is in there? Why didn't they pack this? Like, there's a whole story here. So what did they leave out? <laughs> Not enough novels use bullet points. That's, that's a good... That's true. <laughs> it seems like it's almost frowned upon in, in the genre for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. 
unfair. Unfair. Yeah. I'll try slipping in somewhere. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so we wanted to talk about character in more detail. Um, and we've kind of kind of hinted at it already. I feel like I have encountered the attitude before when people are like getting into a world building rah, rah, kind of conversation of like, well, I, I you know, I don't I don't want to, to know a bunch of world building info dump stuff. Just tell me about the characters as though these two things are completely different or separate. And so I thought we might have opinions on that idea. It, I, I find that so strange, like one informs the other so deeply, right? Like the character will inform the world and vice versa so deeply that it, to me, I, 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 I'm sure there's writers out there, you know, um, and good for them who can actually visualize them, these two things separately, and then maybe meld them a little bit more intentionally and all of that, because to me, I, I can't separate them. It, it's impossible for me to separate the world from the character, because can that character exist in a different world? Sure, but they they won't be that character. They'll just be a trope or an archetype or whatever. You know, I can extract the essence of that character and maybe build a different character around them, but it's not going to be the same. Um, Ravan and Ahilya in The Surviving Sky are very, very much people of their world and their their specific worlds and histories, etc. inform inform them. Um, it informs everything from how they you know, brought up to what they think, what their worldview is, why they have arguments with each other, what philosophies they're learning, you know, um, the challenges they themselves have, all of that. And the world is informed by them too. Like they are constantly changing the world around them to a certain extent. I, I don't know, like I, I, I'm finding it really hard to wrap my head around this idea of like people thinking that they're two separate things. And and I'm sure they have arguments for it in a way, but I I don't. I can't see that. For me, I think <laughs> a lot of the people who make these sorts of arguments are mistaking world building for like just reciting lore and like just dumping like things about history and like now I'm going to tell you about about the hats and things like that. And it's like they don't want. I don't want that. I want to like. I want to read what the characters are doing. And I think there is this great misunderstanding out there of what world building actually is and that's a thing that is informing these terrible opinions <laughs> yes that that thing that thing you are reacting against was not world building it was writing <laughs> it was bad writing in a manner what you did not enjoy. Yeah. yeah i i wonder too if they're if they're sometimes readers who are less familiar with sci-fi and fantasy or at least with sci-fi and fantasy that is second world if they're more used to reading like a contemporary world where you can enter with more assumptions about that world safely, you know, like you won't be as as wrong about the assumptions you make about a character's worldview if it's more grounded in our present reality. And and if they're just then, I don't know, not not seeing the difference when, okay, yes, but if it's a completely different world or a different enough version of our world, that is going to shape the characters differently. I mean, I do this as a thought experiment. I think about like, okay, if my characters were born in a different place in time, who would they be? And like the essence of them is the same, but how that essence gets expressed would be completely different based on the access to education that they had, based on the access to, um, you know, certain political climates that they had. All of these different things would turn them into subtly different people, even if they're the same core. And so I, just, I wonder if some readers trip up not not ever going through that thought experiment i don't know Cass, are you saying uh, you write au fanfic of yourself i um <laughs> i didn't say i wrote it i said i thought about it um, also shut up leave me alone <laughs> that wasn't a denial <laughs> i remember once in a um a college class that the professor had us write like five words that described ourselves, like like pick five oh, words, five God. words you would give someone to explain who you are. That's not a thought experiment. That's torture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was probably part of part of the thought experiment. How do you feel now? That's like um, a Twitter bio back in the day when you had to be yeah. like. <laughs> but like, like, the amazing thing was that most people, at least like like some of their words, if not most of their words, were relational. So they wrote down things like son, sister mother, you know, these, you know, even student or um, all those words fit into like, who are you in relationship to other people? 
And as soon as you start putting someone in relationship to other people, you're putting them in a society. And a society is world building, right? Like, so like, how do you define yourself as a son? Well, that's all part of what your society believes a son is, believes a student is, believes a mother is. All those things are how you're describing yourself in relationship to, in some ways, a small group of people, but in other ways, like the entire society. Who are you within a society? And like, I think we just like we, we tend to think about ourselves at least to some extent that way and I think it's beneficial to think of our characters at least to some extent in that way who how do they fit in their society who are they in relationship with other people and what the world is is going to totally change what that relationship looks like yeah that's that actually that's that's very profound because uh, because how do you answer that question of who you are without attaching yourself to somebody or something right like and whether ourselves personally or to the world or yeah just the society around you so it's it's interesting that you know having that relationship relational measurement um like we accept that almost in ourselves but when it comes to characters in a book it's it's like well are they influencing the world or are they not um, Marshall, there was something that you said earlier, which kind of made me think about, you know, you said that oftentimes people don't necessarily know how to define world building. And that's why they have these arguments that world building can be independent of character and, you know, vice versa. What you were saying, Marshall, earlier about just um, people not finding that um, definition for world building. Do you think there's a difference between like ancient world building in in a book or, you know, uh, fiction and current world building, like lore that characters might not necessarily associate with or change or any of that um, and that people think of that as world building but not necessarily the current world that they're living in even if it's a secondary world it's very like okay this is your current world that's what it is you know that's your reality but lore that's you know classic world building is do you think there's a difference in that that people tend to make i think so i think in part there's a lot of at least there's a lot of things that I've read in slush that make the mistake of thinking that like the things that happened 10,000 years ago are the things we need to we need to know about now <laughs> and that's that's never really the case but yet you get that sense of like these things that are like that are like deep lore that have nothing to do with anybody's day to day like that's like that's the heart of this story or not even necessarily it's the heart of the story but it gets presented like you need to know this you know in the in the prologue even though it's not going to come up till book 3 <laughs> and when people say deep world building it's like well that's not necessarily deep that's that's well i guess it is because of time and everything but is it deep like it's not really informing the, I don't know, it's not informing the depth of the character in the world, and it's not situating yeah. anything, right? Like, yeah. I'm not saying this well, but... I wonder how much of it we can blame on Tolkien. Oh, yeah. Because... A lot. And I, and I don't <laughs> I mean, mean that... When in doubt, just blame Tolkien. <laughs> but, but for him, I don't think it was it was wrong and bad when he did it, because he was dealing with characters who, some of them, you know, like the elves and things, were 4,000 years old, and for them, that ancient history was very much still relevant, and the ring itself was ancient and therefore relevant. But I think people mistake, like, the Silmarillion as being world-building when what it is is more lore slash a different story, when the world-building of Middle-earth is the hobbit's love of the Longbottom Leaf. Like, that is part of their culture. Their food culture is the world-building. Rohan and the horse culture is the world-building, not the 4,000 years of story. But I think because those things lived closer together for him because of some of the characters he was dealing with, people got them blurry. And people have just kept, you know, photocopying that conception over for the last, you know, most of a century. (laughs) I think think so much of fantasy world-building problems can be tracked to that sort of broken telephone game of here's what Tolkien did. Here's what the guy who was trying to do what Tolkien did did. Here's what the guy who was trying to do what the guy was trying to do what Tolkien did. And I'm mimicking that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's interesting because I, it's, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading um, the trilogy with my kids right now. And we're in, we're in the middle of the two towers. And it's really interesting because I don't think Tolkien would have even intended for us to be like reading that deep lore as the same as current world building because he's so careful to like tell us the things about the world right now and how these people are and and how they live and how they even think about each other Mm -hmm. and to separate out how they think about each other 
from these are what the old poems say, these are what the old stories say, you know, that you have, we just read the part where um, Theoden arrives at Isengard and meets the hobbits for the first time. And he's like, wanting to like know about them. And like, so like, tell me about this. Tell me, tell me about this pipe weed that you have because I don't really know anything about it. And they're like, okay, sure, we're happy to tell you all about it. And he's like, this is, you know, you're, there's these old songs that we have that mention halflings, but I didn't really, and it's like, it's so carefully separated. Mm. And so I think it's, even Tolkien wasn't intending for us to take lore and re- like use that instead of world building. Or, or use it as a static measure of world building, right? Like, again, like if, if lore is speaking to your current plot or your current character and they're their world and how if it if it is informing them like history is is fascinating and whether you know fictitious or real and if it is informing characters in a way then I would say that's still like there's still that relationship between characters and world again right no matter how old that lore is etc but if it is just a static backdrop which I think a lot of um, fantasy can kind of fall into that trap of like I'm building a world so I, I it needs to be 10,000 years old and this is where it started and all of that and but it has nothing to do with what's happening now it, it's just there you know to kind of show how deep the world is and if if that's all it exists for it's static it doesn't do anything you know it's just it's it's just this wallpaper and i think then then the world and characters are two very very different things um but if it is actually speaking to the character informing them or you know they they think about their history and um they engage with it in a cert, at a certain level i think i think then it just brings us back to the question of well how how can you say that character and world are not part of the same equation right and because like you're saying they interact and engage with each other in so, so many ways. Um, I like speaking of bullet points, I don't even know if I could make a bullet point list of all the ways in which character and world inter- interact because it's so like deeply entwined and, and, you know, and I think I every imagine... episode of our show is a bullet point <laughs> on that list. <laughs> yes. Just, I mean, I imagine one interesting thing is that depending on what the story is and who the characters are, there are some elements of world that are going to come out more strongly than others like Krithika you were saying um that work is really huge in the surviving sky that what people do as a job is something that's that's you know deeply informs who they are and how they see the world and how they engage with the world in a different book it might be a different a different thing yeah yeah I think I I think when I'm kind of defining a world I I do have to think about it again like I kind of start off with a character as opposed to really a world because I want to see what their story is what what are, what are things that they struggle with and then then the world kind of forms from that because if they're struggling with something that means the world is failing them at some point you know and that's why they're struggling with that or or maybe they are failing themselves and you know teasing out that relationship really helps me define both the world and the character can i just interject and say that that was such like a beautifully millennial thing to say like the world is failing i was thinking that too <laughs> we understand story is that the world will fail you (laughs) the world was failing them so they (laughs) made fiction about it well this is this is why my super hyper competent characters you know go mesh it up is because at some level the world and their circumstances do end up failing them because they're like here we are we have all of the skills and everything but still you know uh shit sucks <laughs> we, we thought we were you know get your degrees and get your all of this right, and then you'll right. you'll you'll be ahead of the game we watched, we watched captain planet and we thought we could fix it and <laughs> jeez did we ever oh my god that turned out to be a lie so <laughs> yeah um but yeah when i'm kind of defining uh you know, I don't. I don't actively go around thinking of what the world is going to look like. I start with the character, their problems, what they care about, and that kind of thing. And the world kind of evolves from that. And then the world does take a life of its own and inform the character back. It's not always the character informing the world. So uh, one thought. Okay, but I'm rewinding slightly in my head. But one thought I had was that if Surviving Sky, if part of like one of the major connections or or conversation points between world and character is work. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever like done done the thought experiment of defining in my books what what those major conversations are between world and character. Cass and Marshall, have you considered? I am thinking about how in the thing that I'm currently working on, which is about theater artists trying to make art to like change the circumstances around them, I like decided to make my life extra difficult by doing this 
big world building concept that there is this like just old magic that surrounds the whole country they're in that no one can do anything violent to each other ever and if you try to harm someone then you're just going to pass out like so you can't do it (laughs) and but like this is the thing like it's so pervasive in like it's been around that way for 200 years so it's just baked into everyone's mindset so then it strikes me what does lashing out look like if violence isn't even something you would think about doing and and i i have a question would you like to come to my passive aggressive midwestern yeah. thing <laughs> <laughs> well that's what i was going to ask like is is doing violence to someone only only physical, physical. or or does okay no. so the world does not take into account verbal or emotional violence interesting it's also interesting to think about intentional versus unintentional harm, right? Like if mm-hmm. if you're kind of defining harm, is it what about accidental harm? Um, would you pass out then as well? There's just so many layers to this question that can yeah, then be explored. It's, it's awesome. I think intent is a key element in the thing I'm doing. But like I crafted this whole thing of because like you can like be verbally abusive and such that there is like a whole culture of dueling but dueling is essentially like dance battles or rap battles or if you don't have like i create create this whole scene where they agree that like my skills and your skills are two completely different things so that wouldn't be a fair duel if like (laughs) so therefore we have to do a weird like cross duel of the things i do well versus the things you do well and let people judge that It's such a fascinating concept, but, you know, to kind of go back to world building and character, it's, you've kind of defined a society almost like that behaviors that all characters have to kind of adhere to, then how do you kind of differentiate between different characters and how they interpret that? Do do you think like in that situation, it's, you know, intention to harm the way that I think might be very different in terms of how you think. So is you know, would that kind of inform the characters in the world back and forth as yeah. well? It's just, it's such a, it's such a fascinating thing to think about, right? And that's a big reason why this, this particular work in progress has been taking me such a, such a long time to crack. <laughs> it has been very gnarly process. I mean, I've been enjoying it and I think I've gotten a better handle on it than when I started, but still I made a hard job for myself because I had to be extra about the world building. And I wonder, you know, to go back to what we were saying about, like people confuse lore for world building and like, oh, I don't care about the world. Like, am I do? Are we all just doing the hard work only for ourselves? Because ninety percent of audiences are like, I don't care. Give me, just give me Europe with the with the serial numbers filed off. <laughs> I feel like a decent number would say that, but they don't even really want that. Though. Yeah. Like, even if they want Europe with the serial numbers filed off, they still want it to feel real. They still want it to feel yeah. immersive. They still want to feel something about it. Um, they don't want to feel like they're just being shuffled from one set to another. You know right. I mean? um, mm-hmm. At least I hope they you know, don't. Because else I'm wasting my time. If, if when you, <laughs> like, go to, the, uh, go to the world building store, you only want to buy things from the Europe section. Um, yeah. But, you know, even that, like, you still have to, you still have to, build it out in some way i think i hope yeah because i think like that's the thing right like it the the realism at least for me like for me the books that i end up really loving and i am so intrigued by and i even go back to reread them often like those are worlds that i want to immerse mm-hmm, myself in mm-hmm. like my introduction to those worlds are is most definitely through the characters and yes oftentimes I want to spend time with the characters too but after a couple of reads of the first read like I'm familiar with the characters it's like yeah they're my friends you know it's it's great to kind of go hang out with them but what I'm really reading for is to understand the nuance and the layering of the world and to see is there something that I missed in my first read like an easter egg here and there and I think discovering those things can make the world so, so real and so, um, just so pleasurable. You know, you kind of sink, you find it's meaty enough. You can you sink your teeth into it and mm-hmm. lose yourself into it. And for me, those, those worlds are most rewarding and was I, I want to return to all the time. So I think 
even if the author kind of did it for themselves, and I know oftentimes, like at least in Surviving Sky and the Rage trilogy, I've left little Easter eggs and, you know, things just for myself, like well, people might not pick up on it. You know, I'm, I'd be grateful if people are rereading the books. I think that's awesome. Like, wow, what a score as an author, you know, somebody's like, spending when you have such a massive TBR list, you want to pick up my book for a second time and read it. That's amazing. But um, but really, I'm doing it for myself because I have to read the book 5,000 times. So I'm <laughs> like... <laughs> It's it's kind of cool to be like oh this is this is one little thing you know a little secret thing that I kind of left for myself and um, and when other authors do something like that um, and I love a book and I reread it like it's it just feels extra rewarding to me to kind of read it again and you know discover something new about it and 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 I can tell the effort that the author has put into creating a world and you know to make this experience so rich for me as a reader I'm often very grateful for it I'm like it's it's so rewarding to have you know to trust that time with an author and to sit with a book and lose yourself in it and just come out of it constantly thinking about that book and it not leaving you and I, I feel like I'm having fewer of those experiences because a part of it is just because my mind is like you know full of stuff right now and I'm not able to do justice to some of the most wonderful books I'm reading um, and part of it that I'm just becoming such a mood reader but when that happens it, it is magic it's nothing short of magic and I, I just love that I live for that experience as a reader and it's not, like amazing to be able to create something like that for even a few readers it's it's awesome. I'm totally with you on that. My favorite worlds are always the ones where I can imagine myself somewhere in there. Like it's a big enough world that I can think even even if I would never appear on the screen of what's happening. It's like I can imagine like, oh, yeah, I'd be off in that corner. I can imagine what kind of job I'd have in that world. And I think that is the difference between a, a world that feels real, that feels it could exist. Can the reader imagine themselves in there and a world that feels like it exists solely for the main character to move through mm-hmm. like that's that's where you start to notice that flatness if it's like i can't really think where i might exist in that world i can't imagine a story for myself in that right. world i think there was um a book i had read like last year that i ended up not finishing because it, it felt like the whole world was um a rat maze for the main character mm-hmm. you know and everything like and that character was perfectly suited for that maze for, you know <laughs> to go through but i was like n- no one why why are all these things like this in the world? It's for the character. And that's, I think that's not really what we're talking about when we're talking about the interplay between character and worlds. Like, we aren't saying build a world that's a little terrarium, perfect for your character to drop them into and then, like, have a thing happen. Or build a maze that's perfect for your character and then drop them into it and make them run it. Like, that's, that's not that organic interplay that, that we're talking about. Because what that gives you is one character and a bunch of NPCs. Mm-hmm. Whereas to me, a world that feels alive, any any character, any character that crosses that page has a life. And you can believe that that person has an entire life that does not consist of standing at their stall waiting to offer fresh berries to travelers that pass all by. Like, you know, like, it's <laughs> like, that's the difference. Is your world, could any character in your world be the main character of some kind of story? Then you've got a world. I remember re- hearing this on um, a podcast somewhere about just like how, how to write side characters. And one of the things was to always make sure that they are main characters of their own little scene as well, right? And give them attitude, give them whatever. It might never come back, but but sometimes it does come back in little Easter eggs. You know, maybe there's a second interaction that the main character has with them. And then the side character becomes a much bigger deal and that kind of thing. It's, uh, yeah, I... I think and this is something that I was also very conscious of in The Surviving Sky because both Iravan and Ahelia are such like alpha, you know, characters are very, you know, full of life and passionate and, you know, full of fire and everything. So they do change and define the world around them in some, some ways. But um, especially Iravan and one of the things that I do quite early, and this is a, a mild spoiler, um, is that he is, he is one of the most um, influential, powerful architects slash magician really in in their world wizard in of their world um and very early in the book i just take away his power in a way that you know he's not allowed to really use it um and it's and this is part of the jacket copy as well the fact that you know he his power kind of reaches like some dangerous proportions and he's almost not allowed to use it so a good chunk of the book is, you know, this super powerful character who is who you would think it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, follow his journey and see all the awesome shit he does, um, which he does do awesome, awesome shit, but it's never in the way that you kind of expect because he's just 
not allowed to use his power. So it's almost his journey kind of takes a whole different pathway into that world and you kind of see that the world doesn't just exist to serve him and because I, I agree with you like when if that is a function of the world that is very two-dimensional and um, and I can't I can't lose myself in it like I I immediately start seeing holes in it and to me like that takes me out of the reading experience at once and yeah, that's, it's, it's such a shame when that happens to what can potentially be such an awesome world and a wonderful reading experience because at least for me at the end of the day it is very much about the reading experience that I want to create like for for the Rageous Trilogy and for Surviving Sky, it was very much like I want people to lose themselves into this world, and if if that is achieved, then like that's that's in my mind that's a success. Like I always think about it in terms of like from when when I was acting, because I always had very minor roles, but at the same time you have to you have to make the most of those minor roles because you have to like. You have to go to the theater every night for six weeks to to say those five lines. So damn, you're gonna make you're gonna play the hell out of those five lines. And I always try and write every small character with that sense, that same sense of just imbuing it with enough life that it would be an interesting part to play, and just having it have that level of infusion to it. And I think I think that's the that's the key. I think there are worse ways to go about it than thinking like, okay, if they made a movie or a TV show of my book, which we all secretly yes. dream about, like, would the actor who got this part at least have fun yeah. with it? Like, <laughs> even if they knew I'm only here for one day, I'm only doing this one scene, but like, would they have fun with those lines? There are worse ways to build a small character. And, and once again, a character that feels like they have a life. Yeah, agreed. I was just say, I, I, I like something that's come up a couple of times, but I don't think we've actually dug into it we've talked a lot about the world influencing your characters but then what happens when your characters influence the world when your characters are enough of a force to change the world um yeah like i think that's interesting because i think it's easy to look at that in the way that history gets taught which is like oh they won a great battle therefore they changed the world except great battles don't always really do that and so I, I, I like seeing characters in books and playing with characters who are really affecting social change, which is so much harder <laughs> than just winning a battle. It's an ongoing process. It's not something that just happens once and boom, world changed. Everything's changed. Society's better. All those things that were fucking us up, they're gone now. It's like, no, that's not how that works at all. But it's so much more interesting to see characters who are trying to do that even if perhaps within the confines of our book, they don't get there, or at least not all the way there. And I think that's a really interesting point too, of often when we think about people who are affecting the world they live in, it's obvious to them and everyone else. Like we're thinking of the chosen one type characters where it's like, yes, this person is going to change the world. But I think that so often in reality, people don't realize they're changing the world when they're doing it. So like, are your characters aware of the ways that they are changing the world, pushing the world in different directions, you know, of that engagement. Is it a goal or is it an accident? Yeah. 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 Or or do they feel helpless, you know, Mm -hmm. while they're doing it? And um, like this question, you know, feels almost like a setup to talk about Ahilia because um, in the surviving sky, she's an archaeologist. She doesn't have power. Like she, people think like she's this like oddball outlier kind of, you know, a person because, um, survival is in the skies and she's looking for a way for civilization to kind of survive um, out in the jungle where there's storms, etc. because she doesn't want survival to be dependent on the privileged few like her husband. Um, and so she is affecting social change because the vast majority of people in that world can't do magic. And so she's like, well, we should have a role in survival too. We should have a say about what survival looks like and what our futures, etc. look like. And right from the beginning of the story, she's constantly trying to push that change. And she has been for a while, you know, as she's, you know, before before the start of the story as well. But you're right, Cass, like this is not something that, you know, happens like in a click. And then, you know, it's like, whoa, won a battle, you know, had this epic scene and like, cool, you know, just going to start living in my ideal little world now. And that's, that's all awesome now. It's That's not how it works. It's so much it's so much work, it's so much talking, it's so much diplomacy, it's it's, you know, it's so much of feeling helpless and inadequate and all of those many things. So characters, I think, I think it's an interesting, interesting thing to think about as well, 
you know, in relation to power that the characters have and the privilege that they have as well. Eravan in the world of Surviving Sky is has a lot of power and privilege and is obviously changing the world, but he never thinks of it like that. He never thinks that he is actually affecting change or he wants to, etc. Whereas Ahelia, who has no power, is always thinking about how she wants to change the world and all the good that she wants to do. Yeah, it's I think I think that question of are your characters changing the world through the course of the story you see how exactly how both Ahelia and Eravan and their marriage actually changes the world. Um, but I don't think necessarily characters a need to have that awareness and i think oftentimes when writers use only the chosen one to affect any kind of change i think they're losing out a lot of really rich narrative by taking that away from the chosen one and having somebody else you know affect that change i think i i find the interesting pieces of story really to be not in the chosen one you know destiny kind of you it's your role to change the world but for somebody who actually wants to and has good reason to, except for the fact that destiny kind of bonked them on the head and said, it's your job to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, not chosen, but choosing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. That's, it's and, and then finding the struggle of it, yeah. right? It's so Way much harder. fun. I always find fascinating about the chosen one trope is who chose besides the writer. Yeah. <laughs> hand, hand wave you in prophecy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very interesting question and one I often find myself thinking about as well. There's also there's also an element of consent, I think. I know we're kind of drifting a little bit, you know, in that, but with chosen one and prophecies and destiny and how they must affect the world, there's also this element of consent. Like did they consent to being the chosen one? <laughs> a lot of them did. They're like, I mean, if I had that, I'd be like, I don't think so. You know, I'm just going to go retire and it's going to be somebody else's problem, but um but if, you know, because Again, it's a kind of change that you want to affect as well, right? And who you are is defined so much by the world that you live in and why you have the role yeah. that you have. Really. <laughs> I have a I have a prophecy in the first book of the Avon cycle that the character who receives it immediately starts making plans about. And he's like, okay, yes, I see the gods. And in his world, it's a reasonable thing to expect. The gods have given me this vision. I have to do something with it. That's within his worldview, perfectly acceptable. And then it turns out that one part of the vision had nothing to do with him at all. Like he interpreted it as, okay, I've got step one, step two, step three. But in fact, steps one and two were happening simultaneously. And step two was not about him. It's about people connected to him, but not him. And when he realizes that he was like, huh, well, that was arrogant of me. <laughs> Oops, whoops, but uh, y'all are on it. <laughs> nice work. Nice work, keep it up. <laughs> Go team. <laughs> but it's it was it was a fun moment of showing his hubris and it was definitely not at all because I was told to insert a prophecy in book one before I'd written books two and three and knew exactly how that was gonna pan out. <laughs> Worked great. <laughs> Made a much better message than if I'd actually had to like pan out all three parts of that prophecy as he thought they would pan out. It's like this is a much better story. <laughs> I mean I think that that element too of like do you affect change in the world? Are you choosing to affect change in the world? Can get into the question too of like who are protagonists and antagonists? Because, like, I mean, it, it, in rare circumstances, you have the character who's like, I will be evil now. <laughs> but usually, your antagonists are, you know, and even your very bad people, you know, if you're going to like objectively look at it and be like, this character is a really bad person, they think they're doing something right, usually. Like, they, they're seeing a broken world and they're like, well, I'm going to fix it this way i have this view on how this will work and and they may be horribly misled it might be part of the way in which they interact with the world it might be part of the way in which they see the world that leads them to go about it that way but i think they can add a richness to the elements of good and bad in your world if you keep in mind like well why are people behaving this way probably in no small part because of who they see themselves as in relationship to the world how much agency they see in terms of their ability to change it and what they're choosing to do about it. I I also really like the kind of stories where you don't have a clear antagonist and, you know, the world itself forms an antagonist. And um, in The Surviving Sky, obviously, there's the Earth Rage, it's a big storms, and they are very much the antagonist, you know. But a lot of disaster stories have that too, right? It's like the climate yeah. or the world itself. And like that is, that is the trouble. And you know, and it's so indifferent and it doesn't have an agenda. It doesn't have like, you know, it just is and and it's awful and it sucks, but you have to kind of deal with it. And I find those stories like really fascinating too, because 
the world kind of being its own antagonist and you kind of having to live in it and survive in it and, you know, do the best that you can and, and affect it to make it a better world, etc. It There's a lot of agency that characters get, uh, but there's also a lot of agency that they almost ascribe to the world, to this indifferent world and, you know, personify mm-hmm. it into its own like thing, um, which is very similar to actually having an antagonist character, which has its own agenda, agenda, right? Like there's, it's, it's just, it's that blurry line between how the characters view the world as this like evil thing or awful, horrible thing, but very rarely do they view, they, do they just view it as this is what it is like i love jurassic park it's one of my favorite you know comfort tv shows movies you know books franchise whatever like i will 100%. watch yeah I, I will i will even go watch the latest ones multiple times because it's got big you know human eating dinosaurs and that's awesome like i you know that's that's kind of cool it's so but i mean the dinosaurs in and of themselves are not really bad or anything they just are they just like and and quite frankly, like many times, I'm just rooting for them, right? No, they just want a snacky snack. They just want a snacky snack. That's true. <laughs> They're just following their nature. Rexy in the first movie, like, only eats bad people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, she she is like, she's she knows. She's like, mm, no, we don't need you, chomp. <laughs> and sometimes would that we could all just chomp. The it's, I th- I think nefarious speaking, influences it's speaking to a deep desire in all of us to be oh to be a team you know, <laughs> oh to be <laughs> I, I know that there are multiple examples of this uh, but also from what you said about antagonists having their own agendas and rationales behind why they do this and kind of informing the world and that kind of thing um I'm, I'm currently reading the founders, uh, the last book of the Founders trilogy by Robert Jackson Bennett, and gosh, I love that trilogy. The world is incredible. It is. I think I might have talked about this earlier as well, um, but it's it's like epic cyberpunk, but fantasy, and it's you know it's the world building is almost like coding, and um, but it and it each of those three books follows like a a group a group of people who essentially conduct like heists to you know get something from the world and that kind of thing it's just so so well done uh, just the relationship that different characters have with the world and how it kind of speaks to it and how they how layered their understanding of the world is and how much they um, engage with it at multiple different levels no matter um, their backgrounds etc and you can kind of see how different backgrounds lead into the definition of the world even as it's kind of evolving and changing um it's so rewarding when a book does that it's especially because some of those point of view characters are antagonists and you can kind of see from their perspective so it's this neat little push and pull of the world itself and a reinterpretation of the world you know what some people think is bad is you know other people's blessing Mm -hmm. it's it's perhaps very millennial of me that i find my villains lately my antagonists lately are people who don't want to change the world. People for whom the world is working fine, and their fight is to keep it that way. It's to enforce the status quo. <laughs> exactly. The ones who don't want things to change. And at a base level, that might be terrible if you're the only person the system's functioning for, but it is understandable. Like, it's it's understandable to say, well, yeah, this guy would look at a world that suits him perfectly and think nothing needs to change, and that anyone who wants to change it is just a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker. Yeah, is the enemy. Yeah, like, he, he feels it as a threat. You know, talking about being completely like, tied into and dependent on the world, because, uh-huh. like, honestly, the idea of keeping things the same could be a very good goal, too. Like, you know... It depends on the world, exactly. exactly. Like, how is, how are who's it working? working for? Exactly. It's Actually, this is... We're, we managed to hit Utopia, and it's working for everybody, and everyone's <laughs> cared for, and why do you want to change it again? To make it better for you as a personal individual? Well, I, I'm mm. not sure. Omalas has a 99.9% satisfaction rate. (laughs) (laughs) Almost everyone is perfectly happy in Omalas. So, like, what's the problem? Almost everyone. It's true. Not convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Look, there was that one bad Yelp review for Omalas, okay? (laughs) I don't know who gave the kid a computer, but... That's part of his suffering, is he has to be on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's actually feels pretty accurate. So on our show, um, if you're joining us for the first time, we invite our guests to give us a little bit of world building trivia to add to the world that we are building live on air. And I'm excited to see what you have for us. Wow. So my world building trivia is um, a little picture book 
uh, you know, that kids kind of read, like one of those board book things, that every single time you open it, it tells you a different story that you've never read before. <laughs> because I would love that. I was about to say, is this a personal wish? <laughs> it, it is a personal wish, because if I have to read The Hungry Hungry Caterpillar one more time... <laughs> I was going to say, though, that like some children, that'd be the worst because they want the same story again and again and again and again. <laughs> they do. They do. Yeah. It's, so this is really uh, this is this is a board book for parents. <laughs> it'd be fun it, if like it'd be fun if it changed every time. But like you never knew on what page it was going to become different. So like maybe the first three pages are the same. And then it changes completely, or it's only the first page that's the same, and then it's It's different. a choose-your-own-adventure, except it chooses. It chooses, yes. It chooses for you. <laughs> I, I like that, because then the kids get that satisfaction of familiarity, and the parents are like, oh, thank God, light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> like three pages. <laughs> like flipping ahead to be like, all right, how much of it's this? Okay, really good. <laughs> I am, I am being slightly facetious, though. I love I love reading to my son, and I don't mind how many times I read the book. It's a, it's a lot of fun, but yeah, it 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 does get a little bit more fun when they like longer books that are more fun to read. I think I've I shared on the podcast before. We're reading kind of like classic books in our house. So we've read like The Hobbit. We've read Alice in Wonderland. We're working through um, Lord of the Rings, and it's like it it gets really fun when. When they can when they can enjoy books that you also enjoy on like a personal enjoyment level, not just a I enjoy doing this because you're my kid and spending time together is fantastic. And yes, I will read Goodnight Moon one more time. I don't know. I don't know why there's a bowl of mush just sitting there. I don't know. I, I don't like it, but but it's there. And I'll it's read it again. the grandma who's whispering Hush's snack for later. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> It's just sitting there. <laughs> How long has it been there? How long has she been in the chair? <laughs> Whispering hush. For how long? Marshall's turning this into a horror story for children. Like It is, though. It Good, is night, Good night, Moon. Good night. I, I am fascinated, by the way, by the Good Night Moon universe, because there is now a Good Night Moon book for everything and every place you could possibly imagine and they just somehow keep coming up with more of them and i find that the bizarre full of mush just fascinating. travels everywhere <laughs> ryan has got this haunted look on her face <laughs> <laughs> it can never get past that <laughs> we just we kind of just choose our own adventure when my husband and i are reading to our son is just we at some point like we just because he's he's still very young so we um we just kind of make our own story as we're flipping the pages and so we we don't actually go according to what the book and like oh look the caterpillar is eating something else today <laughs> you know i don't think the caterpillar needs to eat that you know and that kind of thing but or just do voices etc so there's ways around it but yeah, yeah. it would be kind of cool to have a book that you know every single time you open i guess that's a kindle though <laughs> i don't know did i just did i just give you a kindle <laughs> that's trivia <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> no, but you gave us a sentient one. Like it's choosing, so and, I'm I'm okay I'm, with that. And I'm imagining it being like a beautiful object as well. And my mm-hmm. Kindle is not a very beautiful object. Oh, it's mm-hmm. fun. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Phew. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful having you back, and all the best for Surviving Sky. I can't wait to see how amazing it does, and all the people who are going to read it and love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love being on the podcast. You guys are so much fun. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on June 7th, where we're joined by Kat Howard to talk about world building fantastical elements into the real world. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Rowena's latest, The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, Cass's Oven Cycle, or everything in my Meridane Saga, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. 
We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.